right, it's the Foghorn. You know what that means. It is time for another Cavish Ships podcast. Welcome. We're going to try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, the launch of China's new aircraft carrier, Fujian, on June 22nd, gave the world its first clear look at what China hopes will be a game changer for its burgeoning Navy. But what are we really looking at? What is the significance of the new ship and what China wants to do with it? Noted naval strategist Jerry Hendricks and Patrick Cronin join us to bore in on China's strategies and how the U.S. should be responding. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. A three-ship Russian naval group completed a two-week circumnavigation of the Japanese home islands on July 7th, a week after a similar Chinese naval service group did the same maneuver. Independently, the Chinese intelligence ship Tianlongjing also completed a circuit of Japan on July 7th. In another incident on July 4th, a Chinese frigate appeared to chase a Russian frigate just outside Japanese territorial waters in the Senkaku Islands, apparently a ruse by China to make it appear as if it was defending territory it does not in fact have. Along with nearly daily Chinese and Russian air incursions, all closely monitored by Japan's self-defense forces, the provocations have resulted in a major increase in Japanese defense spending, which is expected to grow even further. The British frigate HMS Montrose intercepted and seized speedboats that were smuggling Iranian missile components likely headed to the Houthi in Yemen. The seizures announced by the Ministry of Defense on July 7th took place January 28th and February 25th in what were described as in international waters south of Iran a phrase seemingly meaning in the Gulf of Oman or Gulf of Aden. After analysis in the UK, the weapons included Iranian-made Type 358 surface-to-air missiles and engines for Type 351 land attack cruise missiles of the type that struck Abu Dhabi on January 17th. This is the first such seizure by a British warship. The U.S. Navy announced July 1st that the deployed ballistic missile submarine Rhode Island arrived for a port visit at Her Majesty's Naval Base Clyde in Foslane, Scotland. While for generations the silent service has been well silent about the operations of deployed submarines, particularly those carrying intercontinental ballistic missiles tipped with nuclear warheads, these and similar recent announcements are clearly politically motivated messages intended to remind adversaries of American capabilities. In new ship news, Taiwan's first domestically designed and built amphibious ship, Yushan, completed its initial round of sea trials July 6th. Although the design is based on that of the U.S. Navy San Antonio class, Taiwan's version at just over 10,000 tons is less than half the size of the American ships. Taiwan has operated ex-U.S. Navy amphibious ships for many years, but this is the nation's first domestic design. And in old ship news, the French Navy decommissioned the frigate La Touche on July 1st after a 32-year career. The ship was the last of seven Georges Leg Type F-70 anti-submarine frigates that were NATO mainstays for many years. The ships now have all been replaced by new Frem frigates. And that's a look at Naval News this week. All right, it's time to move to the discussion portion of the podcast. We are joined this week by Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute, and Jerry Hendricks, President of Hendricks & Associates. Both guests have thoughtful articles out on the significance of the launching of China's new aircraft carrier. Uh, Patrick's is in the Straits Times, and Jerry's is in the National Republic. 
Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Just to start off, and I'll start with Patrick, and then we'll go to Jerry. Um, just very briefly, your view of the significance of this launch, um, both in terms of um, the sophistication of the carrier, but also maybe the timing and um, the use and sort of how you see this playing out both now and in the next couple of years. Uh, Patrick, as I said, we'll start with you. Well, Chris, I, I think, you know, China's doing many things and it's doing many things over many years, but this is still a significant upgrade over the two carriers that they have already. Um, you know, those are Admiral Kuznetsov class designs. This is the first one built from the keel up designed by the Chinese. It's not quite the super carrier, but it's it's maybe a tantamount to something like the Kitty Hawk in terms of size. And they're clearly working on a, an advanced air wing uh, that will eventually go on this. So for me, um, this is China's marker that they are serious about becoming what Xi Jinping has implored them to do to become a maritime great power. Um, the fact that it's named Fujian, and of course, their carriers are all named after coastal ports, but Fujian is, the, is of course, the, uh, the province that's just opposite Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and I think it is a, a psychological, political, geopolitical signal that China is determined to have nothing stand in its way to recover Taiwan from their perspective, to reunify or to unify by force, if necessary, uh, in the coming years, not necessarily in the next year or five years, maybe in the next decade or two. But at some point, China is indicating that it, the U.S. Navy is no longer going to be an obstacle to their great power designs. Jerry? So I, I think that, uh, first of all, I do classify this as super carrier. It's very much in line with the forestal class in terms of tonnage. Uh, it's more in line with kid, uh, uh, midway class in the terms of three catapults, uh, which is uh, sort of a diminished from four catapults that we see with our larger carriers that have been the norm. But the fact is, it appears that China is, is intent on establishing a prestige vehicle. Um, I found it interesting. We went from uh, steam catapults to electromagnetic catapults because we wanted to increase sortie generation. China appeared to follow us with the electromagnetic catapult being built into this, although not tested, not proven yet. We're still in, in very much the launch, but not operational deployment or even the sea trials yet with this. But those electromagnetic catapults are supposed to be there to probably increase production capacity, sortie generation, and yet they have three versus four. Uh, so there's, there's sort of a limitation that they build in this, but given its overall size, this aircraft carrier will be able to launch very large aircraft, uh, potentially that they still have yet to design that could go long distances and then be able to recover them uh, coming back across the, 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 the aft deck. So they're showing tremendous potential for power projection and sea control with this design. And it's very clear that they're moving very quickly. I just stress that they've essentially made the leap of where we went with our first experimental carrier, the Langley in 1922 to the launch of our first supercarrier, the Forestal in 1953. They made that within uh, essentially a, a 10 year period of time. They are moving very fast. So what do you think they're gonna do with this when it comes out? Um, the, I, th I think one of the one of the problems with the media so much is people tend to overreach. They tend to overreact. They, you know, there's an awful lot of media reports on the launch of this ship that talk about it being delivered. So, it, you know, even even the media, much of the mainstream media doesn't understand what's going on. How do you build a ship? They also don't understand that it takes a long time to perfect these things. This is these are these are the largest ships 
warships there are. They're incredibly complex. This is full of systems that are unproven, even for the Chinese. And there's there's rarely any talk about the breakdown of systems here. It's like people look at the boat and go, well, there you go. They've, they've done it. And they haven't really done it yet. It's, it is a picture. It's, it's, it's accurate to say they're moving that way. Of course, this is, this is their ambition. And once they took all the scaffolding off and they put, and they floated the ship out, now we all get a really good look at what they're, what they really are doing, which wasn't available two months ago. But, but again, as with the Ford, the Ford has taken forever to be operational. It's not, it has, it has still hasn't done a real deployment. It's going to do a deployment this fall. It's a limited deployment. Um, so it's, it's taken us forever. They're copying us. They're following us. It's almost, you know, to talk about it's a Chinese carrier. It's, it's an American carrier with Chinese characteristics. Talk about that a little bit, about it's an American carrier with Chinese characteristics. What's, what's Chinese about this carrier? Um, so I, I think what's Chinese is it's clearly that they've done this adaptation. So the, the Chinese are really good at getting things and reverse engineering it. Uh, to make it more in line. They've built essentially what they're capable of. And it's, it's clear that they're taking a very iterative process from an industrial base standpoint. They built this carrier. It appears that there are two other carriers of similar design uh, in production behind it being built in the yards. They have tremendous amount of shipbuilding capacity and they're making use of that. But I take your point very seriously, which is what do they do next with this? It's, it's clear that they have to get this to see and begin testing the new systems that are on board it uh, to, first of all, make sure that this carrier operates mechanically in a sound fashion. I noted that the sheds are still in place over each of the three electromagnetic catapults. And Big so they're going to have to work those systems out. They're going to have to work out the arresting gears. They'll have to work out the aircraft elevators, as well as the ordnance elevators. All those things have been trouble spots for the development of new designs, whether it was the Nimitz class or now the Ford class with us. So they'll have to go through that. But then the real work begins. I always say that probably the most critical person on board, one of our big deck uh, supercarriers, is not the captain of the ship. In fact, it's a guy called the handler which is an LDO, limited duty officer, uh, person who's worked on the flight deck of that carrier for decades and has all of the knowledge about how to move aircraft around and how to do launch and then shift into recovery operations. And essentially he is the choreographer of the ballet of flight deck operations. China has yet to develop a generation of handlers or to work out that choreography. This uh, first carrier, the Fujian will be the place where they start to work out those processes and hopefully then carry those lessons learned over onto the follow-on carriers uh, as they mature. They need, as we all know, three carriers to make one. If you want to do 24-7 operations, you got to have three Cato Bar equipped aircraft carriers to do that. This is simply the first, it's a first step. Yeah, I would say there is a lot of emulation of the U.S. Navy here. This is China aspiring to be like the U.S. Navy um, over time. Uh, it's not so long ago that they were just a coastal defense Navy, and now they have some real blue water power projection. <clears throat> uh, consider the fact that they launched their first uh, carrier, Laoning, uh, 10 years ago. Um, they've come a long way. A lot of people dismissed it and said it would take time. Well, it has taken time, but it proved to be a, a very capable training carrier, uh, and they've, they've been coming along. Um, so what's different about 
the Chinese carrier is they're just getting started in the speed. The one that Jerry emphasized the speed with in the rapidity with which China's being able to make progress compared to the U.S. Navy experience. I think that's the difference here with the Chinese. Uh, I think another difference, main difference, is the scenario. Uh, China's power projection in the first instance is right off its coast. It's over the Taiwan scenario. So if they can encircle Taiwan, close down choke points, and then use their A2 AD capabilities, their anti-satellite capabilities, their cyber warfare capabilities, their political and economic uh, wherewithal, they could uh, potentially force the unification of Taiwan. And that's a very different scenario from how the U.S. has been uh, using carriers to project power abroad. Patrick, what does this mean for um, partners and uh, allies in the region? I mean, what what has been their take on this? Has it been the same as the United States? Are they are they worried by this, or is this sort of the next logical step for the Chinese Navy to take? You know, do you expect to see some reaction from them? Well, I've been talking to allies and partners about this issue, and they do see it differently. They're a little more relaxed than those of us who are worried about the trend. Um, because they're not thinking that far out. Um, they're looking at this as just another step forward. It is just a launch. They have so many hurdles. All of that's true. Um, and yet uh, you think out to 2035 and you probably have a very different balance of maritime power around this region. Um, and uh, you also have a great deal more assertiveness coming out of Beijing. And they are worried about that. Um, and they're divided between the allies who really want to beef up their military capabilities like Japan, which is a real sleeper issue here, threatening to essentially double their defense budget over the next five years. People don't understand, you know, that's that's another $50 billion of defense spending on China-centered programs, if that really happens. It may not happen over the next five years, but it will. Other countries, though, can't do much about it, and they'll try to continue to balance their relations with China and just accede to the fact that China is a growing power. When you think about Japan about to do a, a big sale of, of their new helicopter carrier fleet, you know, through the region, through, through a number of countries in the region, it's now um, seems in the shadow, though, of the size of China's Navy. Um, so even though China doesn't have a delivered uh, supercarrier, it has it has the image of it. It's really expropriated the top gun factor here, the American symbol of power projection, well before it actually has the ability to project as much power as the U.S. Navy. Jerry, thoughts from your perspective, both in terms of uh, how partners and allies may see it, but then also welcome your comments on um, is the U.S. Navy taking it serious enough? And are, are you hearing and seeing enough reaction um, from the U.S. side? OK, so uh, you know, those three points here, I think that the allies and partners are seeing this. Um, this carrier and the way it was launched and the way it was covered was meant to send a message. This is very much a prestige vehicle. This is China announcing that we're a, a, a large super Navy, that we're a blue water Navy, that we have power projection capabilities. That's the message they're trying to sell. Obviously, they haven't proven that yet, but this is the message they're trying to sell. And quite frankly, if you're the Philippines or Indonesia, Malaysia, Cambodia, um, you, you are paying attention to this because you, you can kind of see the freight train coming at this point in time. That being said, now, if you want to ask if the U.S. Navy has been paying attention, um, I don't know. Um, you know, I've been advocating for the U.S. Navy to look at its own carrier aviation program for quite a while. We have, uh, you know, 11 uh, super carriers in the fleet, although the Nimitz is coming up for decommissioning within the next couple of years. Uh, and we're not sure when the Kennedy will prove up after that. But we have supercarriers, uh, but what we don't have is a carrier air wing that can be effective in the new anti-axis air denial environment that the Chinese have created in the Western Pacific. And as Patrick's already alluded to, 
China's playing the home game. We're playing the away game. So we got a greater distance to go. We also don't have the logistics to support multiple carrier operations simultaneously. And the Navy's not paying attention to that. The other thing that I, and I raised this in my National Review essay is, perhaps now is the time for the Navy to do a gear shift to try to regain an asymmetric advantage. It's very clear that we have an advantage in undersea. Our submarines are better, they're quieter, they're more lethal, they carry more ordnance. If we actually shifted from say four-year centers with our carrier production to six-year centers and we shifted industrial capacity to increase submarine production with the Block 5s and the Columbia class, then I think that maybe we could regain asymmetric advantage by more emphasizing power projection from our submarines, the strike potential. Uh, I would actually like to see you know, a Columbia in production actually built as an SSGN versus an SSBN, but we have to do the additional capacity to do that, to be able to do that uh, in stride. So I don't know that the Navy's paying attention, but I, I'm certainly trying to put some ideas out there. Can we talk a little bit about the, the, the impact of the rise of the Chinese Navy and the aggressive actions that they're taking throughout the region on other nations? Uh, I, you know, the Pacific is a totally different international situation than, the, than Europe. There is no NATO. Um, everything in, in the Pacific, by and large, is sort of one-on-one. -on -one. There is the Quad Four uh, going on now that is, that is, that is gaining in stature. Um, and you have a lot of nations that are clearly worried about the Chinese, and the Chinese are provoking an awful lot of people. For example, they just the Chinese and the Russians just did uh, three circumnavigations of the Japanese home islands, just now now completing. Um, clearly, and they're taking their time about it too, and tracked all the way. They're not. There's nothing surreptitious about it. It's a demonstration, but it's provocative. What happened in Europe was, you know, Vladimir Putin hoped that NATO would fracture. In, in his invasion of Ukraine, and the, and the opposite happened. The hardening happened. And NATO, is, NATO has shown signs of unity that it has never shown since the big days of the Cold War. So that, what impact do you think that has in the Pacific? That, you know, if the Chinese are going to make these demonstrations against someone like, like, like Japan and gets plenty of coverage, that's a clarion call to, to Japan to increase its, its defense spending. The actions of the Russians in Europe have got to have an impact on an, on an impression on the countries in the Pacific region in terms of more cooperation against China's threats. I mean, what's your, what's your read on that? Patrick, you can go first. You're, you're out there, I think. Well, China has succeeded in alarming uh, much of the world. I mean, we saw this with a new NATO strategic concept where you have Europe and four major Indo-Pacific countries, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, all signing up and embracing a strategic concept saying that China is a systemic challenge. It's using its coercive power. Uh, it's embracing Russia's aggression in effect over the Ukraine war. Um, and we are concerned about it. Um, and as a result, you see those countries, in particular Japan, South Korea and Australia, very seriously beefing up their defenses. Uh, Japan now pledging for the first time to double defense spending. And after the upper house election on July 10, I think Prime Minister Kishida will be marching out uh, in, in later this year, at the end of this year, talking about the first step of that five-year plan. Uh, South Korea's President Yoon has made it very clear that Korea is coming off the peninsula and is going to be much more of a regional and global player. And he means that in terms of military and economic strength you know, at the same time. 
um, that's a great that's great news for the U.S. because um, they're concerned about China. They're no longer just concerned about North Korea, even though that remains their day job of deterring that threat. Uh, Australia, by signing up with the AUKUS deal and, and, and being embraced even by the new labor government, suggests that Australia is very serious about long term uh, power projection, you know, undersea warfare in particular, but also missile capabilities with long reach. Um, and that all of those will play into tighter U.S. Uh, allied military um, counter China operations. And China is responsible for that. They get full credit for forcing those countries together. You know, nearly 70 years ago, we talked about a NATO and at the time a, a possible PATO uh, that became a, a CETO, essentially, that was ineffective because they didn't really have a common threat. But these countries are now united by a common threat perception over China even if much of the region, especially centered in Southeast Asia, uh, would like to uh, balance the power, uh, not see a war in Southeast Asia or the South Pacific. So we have a divided Indo-Pacific in terms of different views of this, but the big military countries, the ones that our J3s and J5s would be operating with from Indo-PACOM uh, are working ever more closely with more capable allies in Japan, South Korea, and Australia. So my one concern there with that topic is, is the country that Patrick didn't mention, which is the Philippines. Uh, they've just had a presidential election. They have returned the Marcos family to power, um, you know, a nation ostensibly led by a man named Bong Bong is always concerning to me from a geostrategic level. Um, the fact is, is that the, the Philippine government is rife with corruption. They are largely hoping to enter into a bidding war uh, where you know they believe that either the United States versus China are going to try to come with the most amount of money as to who's going to buy access to this territory. And quite frankly, we're just not prepared to play that game uh, under the Biden administration, nor do I think we would have played that game under the Trump administration. It's just we're not playing that game right now. And yet the Philippines, I think, have near-term interests, which is financial gain for their leading families, political families, over the geostrategic um, you know, necessity of the Chinese threat right now. Uh, the Philippines have real issues on the line in the South China Sea, so far as offshore islands and you know, territorial waters and EEZ issues that they do not appear to be taking seriously. They are not spending seriously on their military, nor are they really seriously engaging with the U.S. military about access to uh, Philippine facilities. Uh, they appear to be waiting for the highest bidder. And, and to me, uh, that is probably the thing that worries me the most because the Philippine territory is geostrategically uh, some of the most important in the Pacific. And whoever controls that will control vast amounts of the Western Pacific Ocean. And, and will also control access to Taiwan going forward. So the, the Chinese could actually do an in run around Taiwan, secure the Philippines in a commercial means through bribes and commercial development, and essentially cut us off from being able to reach Taiwan, at least by that access, leaving us only with the Japanese access into Taiwan. It, it, that, that's the thing that, that worries me. And, and I, I just noted that that was a, a topic that, that Patrick sort of skipped over there. And I, I think it's worthy of looking at. I mean, Jerry's right. Uh, and, and China will exploit the chinks in our allied armor. Uh, and they are going to exploit the relationship and the potential corruption in Manila uh, to our disadvantage. And yet, still, despite that, uh, as we saw even under Duterte, um, the Filipinos managed to protect their own interests, uh, even while they're looking for uh, as much benefit as possible off this major power competition. So I don't even ex I don't expect Marcos to throw away the alliance. It just will limit the uh, ability for us to be as effective as we should be.
all of us here are engaged in trying to increase awareness of maritime and naval issues and of course the rise of the chinese navy and the threat that this imposes on, on the entire region and the world order the u.s resolutely does not show pictures of what the chinese are doing um, pictures speak volumes as all of us know you can talk 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 and then you and it's the same thing over and over and over yada 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 then you show one or three pictures and holy look at that has an enormous impact but we don't show anything for example when we do one of our roughly monthly uh, transits of the taiwan strait we at least we announce it now we didn't announce it that that that's relatively new maybe the last year and a half but um and the, you know, it, it only came out as a, as a result of a response to a media query. But when we put out pictures of it, it's just us. It's a somebody goes up on the forecastle of a destroyer and takes, takes a picture of the bridge. Somebody is on the bridge wing and takes a picture of somebody looking out. Somebody's on the bridge taking a picture of somebody driving a boat. We don't see anything around the boat at all. Nothing. Zero. Zip, zilch, nada. We don't, there's, there is no awareness of this, these daily confrontations at sea. There have been a handful of, of, exa of, of examples where, they, where things came out, but onesies and twosies. What's, what's the efficacy of that? Is that a good policy? Should we be showing more, um, for example, the, the, the uh, Japanese carrier Zumo sailed right in the midst of a, a Leoning task group. Uh, a few months ago, while they were conducting air operations, just paraded right in. The Japanese put a picture of that out. That was us. That was our side, anyway, if you will, our partner, responding to their actions. Should we be doing more of that? Or is, or is what we're doing now the right policy? I just pointed out, and I, I mentioned this, uh, because China's doing an awful lot of influence operations, their own word right now. And I tweeted about this this morning. I, I wrote in 2009 about the importance of creating influence squadrons within the Navy. The idea that we would be out and about essentially demonstrating and upholding American interests uh, on a global scale. Uh, and there was a lot more involved with that. And the idea of, of the demonstration has to be a public demonstration. You have to be appear to be strong. You have to be appear to be good. You have to appear to uphold interests. You have to demonstrate what those interests are. And a lot of that is actually uh, comes part and parcel with a strategic communications plan to say, this is what we believe in. We believe in the free seas. We believe in free trade. We believe in access. We believe in humanitarian assistance and disaster response. All those things are important and that needs to be covered so that you're making the picture of what it is to be the American-led system. Right now, China's out trying to demonstrate what the Chinese-led system would look like, and they're, they're doing that through media. We are not taking advantage of that media. And then the, the last thing I would say, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Patrick, is there are some things which create negative influence. And, and, uh, and this is something that's actually I've noted that's been discussed on Twitter, which is when our ships pull into foreign ports and they look so terrible uh, because of rust or you know the overall maintenance of those, we are in fact creating negative influence. We are projecting an image of a Navy in decline. And so we have to pay attention to, you know, uh, I remember the, uh, uh, the Fernando character that Billy Crystal played on Saturday Night Live 30 years ago when I was young and says, you know, it's better to look good than to be good. Well, it's better to look good and be good out there. And our, our U.S. Navy, uh, uh, yeah, Fernando's Lounge, I, I used to love that skit. 
But our U.S. Navy should look good and it should be good. I, I think that our material readiness is good. I think we're training our crews, but our ships look terrible and people notice that. Well, China doesn't always gain benefit from their strategic influence operations, but they are unrelenting every day. And we have to have a similar approach, as Jerry's suggesting. We have to not only get better at strategic influence ourselves, but we have to be prepared for it every day over a long period of time. You have to stay in this arena and fight. Uh, and and we're, we're losing some of that strategic influence just by not showing some of the pictures that you're talking about, Chris, because we do have access to that information. We should be demonstrating and using it and leveraging it uh, to our advantage uh, much better than we are. We have started to at least uh, reveal some of the Chinese ship movements, right? And, and some of the aggression uh, on the part of Chinese forces are getting revealed in the form of uh, overhead satellite imagery from commercial satellite uh, companies. But at the same time, uh, we can do much more in terms of this. We also need to do a lot of other things like share tactical information better with the Taiwanese. Uh, you know, we need to be building up uh, other institutions. At a broad level, though, in terms of the strategic narrative that Jerry was talking about, <clears throat> we can and we are, I think, uh, working toward a better understanding of a free and open Indo-Pacific kind of approach to the world versus what China's um, euphemistically calling their global security initiative, which is a very uh, hegemonic uh, sort of Chinese-centric view of how the world should be run. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for, for your time. Um, this could go on for hours, if not days, and it, it this conversation needs to continue. So I, I know our audience will continue to follow you in your writings and uh, in your social media shares. Um, I, I will make one program note. Uh, Patrick is a regular a participant on Vago's Friday uh, podcast, the Washington Roundtable, uh, and we'll also join Vago next week to kind of look at the first six months of 2022 from a Indo-PACOM uh, Chinese um, perspective um, and, and kind of hit on some of these high points in, in greater detail. So I would encourage our audience uh, to, to check that out. Again, thank you very much. Um, we've been talking to Dr. Jerry Hendricks, Patrick Cronin. Gentlemen, I hope you'll join us again. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. This week, Chris Cavus talks about the need for naval action in the Black Sea. Russia's war on Ukraine appears to be settling into a war of attrition, with each side grinding each other down in a conflict where neither can gain a decisive advantage. The world now faces the prospect of a long period where, while the conflict is eating up the Russian and Ukrainian militaries and devastating large parts of Ukraine, the war's effects on world economies and regional issues, especially food supplies, will become ever more acute. Increasingly, there are calls for Western action, particularly to the, to the United States, to break Russia's naval blockade of Ukraine and open the Black Sea to the export of Ukrainian grains, critical supplies that feed millions of people in Africa and elsewhere. The food war is going to get much worse, even as Russia has started exporting stolen Ukrainian wheat loaded onto Russian cargo ships. Advocates of increased Western action are calling specifically for naval intervention. They envision U.S. warships joined by British minesweepers entering the Black Sea to clear a path to Odessa and allow Ukraine to resume food exports and ships that would be guarded by American warships, a scenario envisioned this week by Washington Post columnist George F. Will. These calls are likely to become even more strident in the coming winter, when food shortages, which are already are appearing, grow ever more severe. 
Such an intervention is a tempting scenario, particularly if, as would be likely, it would be under the NATO banner. Since the war began in February, NATO warships have maintained a steady show of force in the Mediterranean, where numerous Russian naval ships have been blocked from returning to their Black Sea bases by Turkey's threat to invoke the Montreux Convention. But Turkey hasn't specifically invoked the convention's clauses prohibiting the transit of warring ships. President Erdogan has only threatened to do so. There appears to be a sort of unofficial agreement between Russia and Turkey that as long as Russia doesn't make a show of moving its military forces through the Turkish Straits, the only way in and out of the Black Sea, then Turkey won't officially invoke the convention. But that's only the beginning of a series of sticky legal wickets governing how and whose warships can transit the Straits. Among other things, Vladimir Putin's definition of his invasion as a special military operation avoids triggering laws of conflict and neutrality that would take place were he to, de were he to declare war on Ukraine. While a member nation, Erdogan's Turkey is not a reliable NATO partner, depending on the issue of hand. Aside from being the generally anti-democracy -de leader of Turkey, Erdogan walks a tightrope between NATO, which includes Turkey's traditional adversary Greece, and the Russian giant with whom he shares a border as well as the Black Sea. As food and economic situations worsen, calls for a naval intervention are likely to increase. Everyone, however, needs to understand the risks of NATO warships entering the Black Sea where they could easily be trapped. Erdogan, under pressure from Putin, could change his mind after letting them in, and prohibit those same American and NATO warships from leaving, essentially making them hostages. This is just one more very unhappy aspect of this very unhappy war, with at the moment no clear solution. Well said, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vagar Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>